The following podcast contains content of a highly graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. The material covered is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to the victims and their families. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is making a difference in crime analysis and public safety, head to Esri Australia, that's E-S-R-I australia.com.au slash crime. I'm Tori Shepherd, and this is Mapping Evil with Mike King. Now, if you're a regular listener of Mapping Evil, you'll know we always give a graphic content warning. But today's episode may be particularly distressing to some, as it includes a case involving violence against a child. So as always, we recommend listener discretion. He said, I'm going to just go in and slit their throats. In the Bible, that's the way they got rid of people, by the sword, and that's what we need to do. I'm only doing what God told me to do. This is a true crime podcast that explores the geography of crimes and killers. He says, Ron, I'm the voice of God, but you are the arm of God. You're the one that gets to do the dirty work. I just tell you what to do. Episode 8, Plotting the Path from Prophet to Predator. It is about contact tracing. It's where do people come into contact with each other? What's the association between them? And what's the relationship between one point on the map and another point? Throughout history, religion has been used by predators to justify crimes, especially those killers who believe they have a personal connection to their gods. But how do people end up like that? Are they born that way? Or is it their surroundings, the location where they live? the demography of the people around them that contributes to these extreme beliefs. Mike King is an expert on this topic and has been responsible for catching some of America's most notorious religiously motivated criminals. He even has his own YouTube channel called Profiling Evil, which is definitely worth checking out. So in this episode, we're delving into his incredible knowledge bank to explore religious fanaticism and how the rituals of people's religion and belief systems influence their criminal behaviour or help to disguise it. It is a really peculiar kind of murder and murderer that gets involved in ritualistic style killings. It boils down to trying to look at the case really from a fundamental standpoint. First, just examining it as a homicide, but then looking at the ritualism as more of a a contributing factor or, or, or an aggravating factor to these kinds of murders. So look, a very well-known ritualistic killing from the United States that we'll take a closer look at today is the Lafferty brothers. And you were closely involved with these guys, right? You actually got to know the brothers, or at least Dan. Talk us through what they did and how they tried to justify it. Well, you know, Tori, the thing that was interesting about the Lafferty brothers is they started out with maybe altruistic feelings. They were wanting to be leaders in their local church congregations. That wasn't working out because obviously there were character deficiencies. They came from a family that really pushed religion as a very big part of their lives. And so they were almost a little bit overboard in uh, religion within the family. But the boys, when they didn't get the accolades that they hoped for, had to go out and start creating their own kind of a religion. And through that process, they then started creating revelations that they purported came from the God that they believed in. And those revelations that they had then led them to committing homicides. So the revelations were things they wrote down that predicted what was going to happen in the future. 
Yeah, and, you know, it's crazy. I mean, I've dealt with cults and ritualistic cases for much of my career. And it's always interesting because suddenly when they can't satisfy a passion that they have legitimately, they create this God-driven responsibility to take the responsibility of the act off of them. I'm only doing what God told me to do, which is absolute malarkey. Of course. (laughs) So they started out as religious zealots and they became so extreme, they were excommunicated from the Latter-day Saint faith for their beliefs and just went on to become absolute extremists, using religion as an excuse. Yeah, and isn't that really the interesting thing is they took something good and what they did is they turned it into a cancer and used it as a weapon to not only get control but to justify their acts, which were criminal. Well, now we're getting to, and look, I hope this doesn't sound too lurid, but the guts of the matter. Mike, talk us through where this ended up, the crime that this all culminated in. So what happened is the Lafferty brothers, as their narcissism continued and magnified, they created a a little church of their own and they started building followers and they had people that were believing them and listening to them. And they used an old canon of text from their uh, faith that they had previously belonged to and created something that they called the School of the Prophets. And they said this was a a training ground for them, and more importantly, Ron, who was the self-proclaimed leader of the group, to train other people, including uh, the attempts that they made at recruiting their younger brother, Alan. And there were some really interesting things about Alan because he loved his brothers, he looked up to them, he started to mirror and mimic many of the things that, that he was watching his brothers do. And this just infuriated his wife, who knew that these two were crazy. And thankfully, she demands that he stay away from them. So Brenda goes, oh, hang on a second. I'm not entirely sure that you are prophets sent from God. So she challenged their beliefs. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now imagine how that infuriates these self-proclaimed prophets who now have someone, and a woman no less, because they felt that men had a higher priesthood power than women would have. And so in order to keep control of her, they demanded that her husband, Alan, get control and tell her to knock it off and to settle down. Well, this was a strong-willed, independent woman who had a college education. She was successful and she wasn't gonna put up with it. And she demands her husband back away. Well, as we see in many of these cases, Ron, this self-proclaimed leader, then receives revelation from God that she needs to be controlled. And the way he thinks she needs to be controlled is through a revelation that he calls the removal revelation or the removal document, which in essence, Tori, gives him the authority or gives him the orders from God to have her removed. Uh, That's why they called it the removal document. Just get rid of them, just get them out of the way. Can you tell us a bit then about the actual crime? Because there's a bit of confusion, isn't there? One of them claimed to have killed both Brenda and her daughter, which we'll talk about a bit, but that might not quite have been right. No, actually, it was accurate, and I get that from the horse's mouth, the one who did the killing. The thing that was interesting in that case is that once this removal document came into play, now remember, Ron believes he's a prophet of God, and he has proclaimed himself as the voice of God. 
And he then tells his younger brother, Dan, who, like his very younger brother, idolizes Ron the prophet. He says, Ron, I'm the voice of God, but you, you are the arm of God. You're the one that gets to do the dirty work. I just tell you what to do. How convenient. Isn't this great? I don't have to get my hands bloody, for, and that's a kind of a bad use of terms in this case, but I don't have to get my hands dirty. But you know what? You're really lucky because God wants you to do whatever I bid you to do. And Dan then says, well, let me think about this. And Dan says, I got a pretty good feeling. I mean, I'm not getting a no, and I'm not really getting a yes. And again, Tori, I'm telling you exactly the words that this killer told me as we sat in interviews together. And he says, all right, we're going to do it. And his brother says, well, how do you want to do this? And he says, oh, I'm going to let me think about this for a minute. He says, nope, I got it. He said, I'm going to just go in. And uh, he said, I'm going to slit their throats. That's the way that in the Bible they got rid of people was by the sword. And that's what we need to do. Listeners, look, I'm just going to hit pause for a moment here to let you know that coming up in my conversation with Mike are some details of the Lafferty brothers' crimes that could be very hard to hear. So once they've concocted this plan, Tori, what they do is they get two other guys that they've pulled into this school of the prophets and this wacky belief system that they've created to serve as drivers and sentries while they go into the home. A guy named Ricky and another one named Chuck. They drive up and they pull up in front of uh, Brenda's home. Now, there's some really troubling things that happened in this case that still bother me to this day. It's interesting to me that the brother happens to be away. This is a holiday in the state of Utah where I live. And on this holiday, he leaves home and goes to a job site and happens to be gone during the day. He also does something really peculiar. Just before the murders occur, Alan calls his wife and he wants to know what she's wearing. And she indicates that she's doing the wash and she's just wearing her bathing suit with a pair of uh, shorts pulled on over the top of the suit. They come into the home and immediately a fight breaks out as Brenda tries to get them out of her home. And, and of course, she knows that this is really bad. Dan talks about how there was a struggle, and eventually what they do is cut the cord off of the vacuum with a large filleting knife that they have, and they wrap that cord around Brenda's neck until she passes out. At that point, Dan then goes into the bedroom, and he, get this, Tori, he goes into the bedroom, and he speaks to the baby for a few minutes, has a conversation, and in this conversation he's saying, Hey, little one, I don't know why you need to go, but you got to go. And then at that point, he grabs the child and, and then he executes the child with the knife to the throat. Terrible scene. He walks away, then goes into the other room. And this is where some of the confusion came because Ron helps with getting Brenda tied up with this vacuum cord. But then they remove the cord from her neck and then Dan takes her life so once they leave the home, Tori, what they do is they get in the station wagon and they drive past the home of an ecclesiastic leader that they had intended on killing. But they're so engaged in conversation about the murders that they had just committed that they completely drive past not paying attention. So that guy avoids becoming a victim to this crowd. They then go to the home of their next intended victim, and thankfully she's not at home. 
and frustrated, they get in the car and they head out. With uh, As they're driving away, Dan turns to Ron and says, I guess God didn't want those two killed. And he said, nope, I guess not. Okay, so once again, there's a convenient explanation for things that they've done. In this case, kind of stuffing up more intended murders. And then they go on, though, and get caught in quite a strange place. Yeah, it is so strange how the deity in their life works. They are driven to head to Nevada to a casino, and uh, it's in that casino that they actually are finally captured. So they're busted. But that's kind of where the story begins, in a sense, for you, because you do a lot of work getting inside killers' minds, and you end up getting to know Dan and then using him to teach other law enforcement investigators about how he thought. How does it help you listening to a guy like Dan talk about his crimes? It immediately makes you think, number one, about the mental stability of someone that can do this. And that became an issue in court of whether they were uh, mentally capable of, of even being able to be prosecuted in that, which they quickly were found capable. Because not only in yours and my book and everyone else's, this is you'd have to be crazy to do something like this. What the prosecution and law enforcement was able to show is that they methodically put these uh, murders together, they methodically acted them out, and then they methodically evaded police and capture. And those are the kinds of things that lend you to that they understand what society's norms are and what is right and wrong, but that they chose to do it anyway, which led to them going to court and, and being prosecuted. And then you get to hear straight from them how they thought about these things. And as you said, Dan was able to talk you through his conversations with Ron in front of that room full of law enforcement officers. I guess that really helps them understand the strategies. Does it also help them understand that moment where they move from just fantasising about something into actually taking action? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because we talk about these crimes as investigators based on our experience, which is trying to break down the case, understand what the elements are that were, were involved in it, and then trying to get confessions. We can theorize all day long about what motivates a killer. But now imagine, because of a situation like this, we had 500 investigators in this classroom or auditorium when Dan spoke to them, and, and now you have the actual predator coming in and talking about what their belief system is, what motivated them, why they did things the way they did, and why they did things in the order that they did. All of these can help us to vicariously roll in the dirt and experience this crime like they would experience it. And then we can start to apply legitimate kinds of feelings that we all have against these illegitimate kinds of activities and start to understand better how this predatory mind thinks. So we're going right to the horse's mouth to get the information. And that brings us a little bit back to nature or nurture as we're trying to understand how these people unravel, I guess. So tell us a bit about their upbringing because the two brothers, Ron and Dan, obviously turned evil and it doesn't sound like the younger brother was a good egg either. So what was their home life like when they were growing up? Yeah, so we talk about victimology a lot, but it's important that we do exactly what you're asking. We look at the suspectology or study the life of these people who were suspects. These were boys who were raised in a pretty large family with a father who was very strict and very abusive. In fact, at times the abuse was so violent that uh, their father even went as far as killing family 
pets in front of family members to assert and send the message that he really is the one in charge. That's a terribly big red flag. And imagine being raised in that environment as a child and then eventually mimicking those same kinds of behaviors. Their father was a constitutionalist or a person who believed in the United States, the Constitution or the founding basis of the country and that all new laws or all new taxes are all just an aberration of what was originally intended. So he constantly was fighting against taxation, against things like uh, modern medicine and other kinds of things. Mom was a little wacky herself, though, and I, I remember one story in particular that was troubling because this is a woman who placed Ron as, in her mind, kind of the head of the household. She really spent more time in relationship with Ron and that we have nothing to suggest that there was anything intimate going on, but that she put him more as the head of household in the house. But Dan recites times how his mother would hang a needle from a thread and the family would sit around the table after she had prepared the dinner. And then, similar to an Ouija board, she would let the thread and needles swing back and forth to tell them what would be served first and in what order based on whatever was happening with this thread swinging back and forth. So there were a lot of wacky things going on in that household. So they were primed, in a sense, to take to extremist worldviews. So we go back to where we started, nurture or nature. And as a profiler, we look at these cases and we say, but we really have to look at the behavior at the scene. We have to look at the fact that they understood what society's standards are and that they choose to violate them and hurt people. All righty, so let's, let's look at how this plays out. So they're religious zealots. They use religion as an excuse. They carry out their righteous anger. But you want to look at the broader network. Don't you? I mean, so they're building up a following. They came out of this family that had its own quirks, shall we say. How do you start to look at the network that's left? Especially when, like, I know we've heard previously with extremists, if they leave behind something like a revelation or a manifesto, you have to worry about the people who are still running around free who might be reading that. Yeah, that really is the thing that's so troubling to me is I worry less about the leader of a group than I do the follower who wants to prove their allegiance to the leader. Dan and Ron are perfect examples. Ron says, I am the voice of God, and Dan assumes this position. Well, then I'll be the arm of God to act out these things and prove how devoted I am to you. This is really typical of cult practices. They work very stringently at the leadership level to give the followers meaningful responsibilities that somehow give them a sense of purpose. Right. So let's talk a bit about what you do today, because we have all this extraordinary technology now to map how these networks build up and maybe split off. So if you could tag people who gave signs of being extremists, how would you work at it today to make sure that once Ron and Dan were off the scene, no one else was going to follow in their footsteps? Yeah, that's great because we're, we're now 30 years later trying to understand what we would do differently. Today, we would certainly spend more time understanding what's being socialized on the uh, internet. We'd want to get into things like those manifestos and other things where we, we can better understand what's motivating and what the belief process is for these individuals. But then we can start to look at things geographically. We can start to link together who all of the associates are and create these really rich link analysis charts that show us 
where individuals are originating and where they're ending up. How are they getting from wherever they live in the world to this cult and participating in this organization? Once we do that, then it really boils down to what do we do from that standpoint of good old fashioned detective work where we get in and start following leads. We identify where people are buying things, where they're selling things, even as simple as where they're getting fuel every day when they go or their cup of coffee in the morning so that we can start to understand the behaviors. And once we start to understand those behaviors and look at them geographically, it starts raising a whole bunch of questions that we can ask ourselves that deal with things like temporal kinds of decisions or evidentiary kinds of things. Mike, as we record this, the coronavirus is still raging around the world. And it just strikes me that tracking the spread of viral ideas is not too dissimilar to what we're doing now, which is where have they been? Who are the close contacts? How much time did they spend with that person? What was their behaviour like? Yeah, that's perfect because it is about contact tracing. And instead of looking at where a virus is transmitted, it's where do people come into contact with each other? What's the association between them? And what's the relationship between one point on the map and another point? I'm going to take you from where you are right now at home all the way to Australia and a cold case here that seems to have all the markings of a ritual killing and it seems to be a very cold case. We're going to go through some big unknowns and mysteries about this. So Maria James was stabbed 68 times. She lived at the back of her Melbourne bookshop and, Mike, this is your bag because it's a real cold case and I feel like people who follow true crime cases might think that sounds like a crime of passion or that stabbing is often what you hear about when someone's really personally involved. But in fact, when they looked at it, it does look like maybe somebody inflicted a ritual punishment and authorities at the time thought it might have been religiously motivated. Yeah, this has been a really interesting one to study. And and the thing that I've found interesting is, you know, experience shows that when there are multiple stab wounds, there is this indication that there's personalization. It also is indication that there might be incredible disorganization, that the offender just really may be messed up. So it's so important that we start to understand what the relationships are, what the victimology is, and the possible suspects to try to determine if there are relationships that bring them closer together. We've got to look at things like the location of the wounds, Tori. And as we think about that, we've got to think about things like in a sadistic sexual case, we might see focus on things like the genitalia. In other kinds of cases, I've seen horrendous stab wounds that are just confined to the face. And there are peculiar reasons why that happens. So we sometimes jump to conclusions before we really start gathering all the facts. And that's been one of the exciting things in this case is that there are a lot of things that today even could be investigated further. Well, yeah, like as you were talking, I was thinking about crimes of passion. You know, you immediately think of a spurned lover or something like that. But a crime of passion could equally be connected to religious passion in the killer's mind, the same kind of anger or revenge that leads to something getting completely out of control. Now, here in Australia, I mean, it happens all around the world, but it's been recent here that we've had big investigations into abuse in church institutions. So there's a suggestion that while it could have been straight religious motivation that led to this crime, it could also have been some kind of cover-up and maybe even a combination of both. Yeah, that's why we need to be so cautious when we look at these 
that we first gather facts before we start putting out theories. This idea of deciding uh, one way or another can be problematic because we would spend all of our time trying to twist true facts to fit whatever theories we have. I think there's a real interesting piece to this case that could also be disorganization. It could have been that once someone started stabbing, they just lost all control. And like a Tasmanian devil, now that's probably not a fair thing to say to someone in Australia. We call it that because of that frenzied way in which the little cartoon character, the Tasmanian devil, would just been out of control and do things. Well, we see this happening in crime scenes. So it becomes really a challenge for law enforcement to start to pick apart the case and understand, is it disorganization? And there are other things that would lead to help us understand whether there's disorganization. Is it really a ritual killing where there are specific kinds of things happening? Is it exploratory in nature? There's just so many questions that are hard to answer when we're looking at it from the 30,000-foot level. So tell us about the connections between Maria and her local clergy. Yeah, that was really troubling to me as I looked at that, Tori, because the local clergy were actually helping the mother with a handicapped child. And there is evidence to suggest, witness testimony, including testimony from the child, that this clergy was going to be reported and that the mother, Maria, was planning on reporting the clergy member that particular day. Now, I wonder if the phone call that she was making to her husband or that he was returning to her had something to do with that declaration. Was the visitor that was in the house actually someone who was associated, the clergy in this case? Or was it just the boogeyman who happened to get there at the right place and right time? Ah, Mike, you mentioned the phone call, and I really am interested to hear a bit more about that and how it fitted into the way the day panned out, because the events can be a little confusing. So talk us through the phone call and the series of events after that, before the body was discovered. Yeah, I wish I knew more about that, and I would love to have the opportunity to re-interview the people involved in this case, the the ex-husband. Now, apparently they had a pretty good relationship, and they were doing a good job of dual parenting. At least that's what I'm assuming based on what I've read. I find it interesting that the husband, the ex-husband, hears what he believes is an argument And instead of immediately calling the police, he gets in his vehicle and makes the 15-minute drive down to the scene. And then, of course, there are some conflicting things that I just don't know if it's because I've read conflicting news reports. But he then has a difficult time getting into the house. He finally gets inside the home and finds his ex-wife murdered and laying in the back bedroom. And this is peculiar to me because he then turns and leaves and goes to call the police. Now, that creates a couple of questions in my mind, Tori. It troubles me that the husband didn't use the phone in the victim's home. Rather, he leaves the home and goes to make a phone call. Now, maybe that phone line was cut and that information's never been made available. Another possible explanation is he may have even sensed that the killer was still in the house and fled to a position of safety to make that phone call. But either way, those are questions that to me need to be answered. Now, as we step outside, when I look at this on a three-dimensional map, this home is just, if I have my 
coordinates right, just north, I mean, less than a, a city block from uh, the local church that the suspected clergy members attend and I assume live in. It's a pretty built-up area. It's not a quiet lane somewhere. And so to run out and then run down the street to a place where he could make a phone call to police causes me some additional concern. I'd like to know how many businesses he passed or how many doorways he could have banged on to call for help. That really troubles me. And by no means am I indicting the husband in this. It's just these are the questions that come up in my mind as a profiler or an investigator. Well, how would you work that out today? So we've got the killer who's presumably run out onto the street and the husband sort of has run around and gone back inside. Now we have CCTV. I mean, we have so much more surveillance. How would you start putting together a map of what happened? Yeah, today would be really nice. I assume that there are cameras around the businesses and in the parking lots. There are residential cameras. And one of the things that we've done cooperatively uh, throughout the states and we're seeing now happen more and more in other countries is that we're using mapping and GIS to also allow the public to register where their cameras are on their homes. And of course, we're seeing now the advent of cameras in doorbells and in light switches and everything else. So there is this huge network as part of this internet of things or mass amounts of data that are available that we could start collecting a lot of information that we never could have before. But I would want to know as an investigator back then or today about the parolees and probationers, people who were recently released from prison that might have similar kinds of crimes in their backgrounds. I'd want to know where they lived, and I'd want to start isolating those one by one. I'd want to think about how much time passed between the husband leaving the apartment to call for police and police arriving on the scene and see how far could someone walk in that amount of time and start creating either a drive scenario or a walking scenario to start working backwards from. So there's a lot we can do with GIS in these kinds of cases. I want to know a little bit more about proactive policing. Now that we have all this information and data, what can you do to stop crimes as well as to track them down once they've happened? That's a really powerful question, Tori. You know, GIS allows us to map out and forecast events based on previous kinds of crimes and circumstances. Now, a profiler will teach that past behavior is indicative of future behavior. By implementing this science of geography, we can gain a better understanding of what's happening around us. And then, as we gain this additional insight, we're in a much better position to respond appropriately. Like a weather map, crime data, offender locations, victim demographics, information like that with some proper analysis can lead to clearer problem solving and, frankly, problem analysis and resolution. In essence, Tori, I guess the idea is that law enforcement agencies can lean on each other and see how other agencies are using GIS to impact the business of public safety. It's part of this trend that we're seeing that promises proactive strategies for proactive policing. As always, Mike, it's been a great chat today about murder and religious fanaticism. And ordinarily, I would say that's a wrap and we'll call it a day. But I'd like to ask you something. It's kind of on a personal note. So 
I'm a target for a heap of hate groups just because I tend to annoy people quite a lot. So with what you know about GIS and data, how would you go about looking at my victimology and how I could reduce my risk of being trapped? Well, I think, Tori, one of the first things that all of us can do is assess the repetitive behaviors in our life. Are we always going to the same coffee shop every morning, ordering the exact same thing at the exact same time so that we show up at work at the exact same moment? Do we always try to park in the same spot? All of these things that we do that are very um, habitual in the way that we're acting also create ways for predators to target us more easily. So that's one thing we can do is think about how do we mix it up a little bit? How can I maybe take a different route to work once in a while? We might actually have a little fun doing that. The other thing is, what are we doing with our our experience on social networks and on the internet and other things? What are we doing to protect ourselves? Are we opening emails that seem a little odd, but our curiosity is just killing us and we want to look into it? Are we responding on chat rooms to people that we don't know and creating relationships or sharing intimate information about where we went to school or how old we are or my brother's name is Billy? Those kinds of things also create weaknesses in our fortress of trying to protect who we are. You know, recently we had a a horrendous case in the States with Harvey Weinstein. And the thing that kept coming up over and over again is that he exploited these weaknesses and these desires that people have to get something for nothing. And so that's the other thing is we really need to be cautious. If it sounds too good to be true, our parents were right. It probably is. Always such wise words. And you're right about all the social media. I mean, I, as a journalist and particularly as an annoying journalist, you know, we go through all these processes, you suppress your address, and I had disabled all my location devices. And then I had somebody able to work out where I was by facial recognition and then by the location devices on a friend's phone. You know, if, if they took a photo of me and then I had a pest who got all his followers to search for photos of me through Google Images and reverse image search just to pull them all together. It's really troubling. Yeah, that is such a good lesson, though, to your peers and to everyone out there that there are things that we're doing that we think are innocent that still are exposing us to others. You know, I, I watch people who find some sense of importance by having hundreds of Facebook friends or connections. Well, by doing that, we continue to expose ourselves again to people that we don't know, and, and we really should be more cautious about that. So, Mike, we've been through the Lafferty brothers and right inside Dan's brain, and I hope I don't think about that for the rest of the day. And, of course, this amazing cold case in Melbourne, which I think I'm going to go and try and find some more out about. And we'll be back with more Mapping Evil with Mike King. So for now, thank you to today's sponsor, Esri Australia, whose mapping solutions help public safety agencies across the country predict and fight crime, track the crims and keep us safe. And as we now know, it could help us keep an eye on some of these ritual killers and doomsday cults and where people end up. You can get a free trial of Esri software at mappingevil.com.au. You can also look at all the bonus information, see a really interesting story map about the Maria James case. You can buy Mike's book. All those details are on the website. Mike, thank you again. I'm going to go have another look at my privacy settings. Thanks, Mike. If you've found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. 
And if you have information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. And don't forget, you can access other resources, including interactive maps and a free trial of Esri's mapping software at mappingevil.com.au. If you enjoyed Mapping Evil with Mike King, leave us a review and follow us on Apple Podcasts. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepherd, and Mike King. Sound design by Fig Media with editing support from Kim Douglas, Gabby Patterson, Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Superscript and our executive producers are Raquel Jackson and Alicia Kuperitsis. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.